0: The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no control.
1: Get ready to take notes, because school is now in session. Tackling the biggest issues in education, this is Education America. Save the Classroom, Save the Country. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Hey, teacher,
0: leave them kids alone. And welcome to Education America, where we are taking steps to save the classroom so that we can save the country. Come along with us this Saturday, and I want to turn to my co-host Rebecca Hagstrom, who many years ago saw the need for a great education. Rebecca, it's always great to have you on the program.
1: Well, over the last year, Mark, uh, we have spent much time helping our listening audience become acquainted with some of the terminology from a movement that's becoming, unfortunately, a very regular fixture in school classrooms across Minnesota and really across the whole country. Yes. Um, And these topics include things like structures of whiteness, implicit biases, racial equity, uh, racial discipline. And then we hear about things like the 1619 Project and critical race theory.
0: Absolutely. And our guest tonight says that accepting the claims of the new woke movement requires ignoring the extraordinary progress America has made in overcoming the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow laws, not to mention the advances that came from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, decades of affirmative action, massive social welfare spending, in a two-term black president and currently a black vice president. The movement maintains that our society, including the classroom, remains captive to white supremacy. Is this a new movement or are we contending with ideas that are part of a much larger adversary culture whose ideas are borrowed from revolutions that have left devastating consequences mm-hmm. in other parts of the world?
1: Yes, and joining us by telephone tonight to discuss the advancement of the adversary culture in America And of course, the lessons also that we really must learn from adversary culture in other parts of the world is Catherine Kirsten. And Catherine is a writer and an attorney, a senior policy fellow and founding director at the Center of the American Experiment, having also served as its chair from 1996 to 1998. Catherine has also served as a Metro columnist for the Star Tribune from 2005 to 2008, and before that was an opinion columnist for the paper for 17 years. Catherine's a regular contributor on this show, and as always, Catherine, it's an honor to have you join us again tonight on Education Nation.
0: Always wonderful to be with you. Well, Catherine, before we begin our discussion on the new revolution and its purposes in schools in Minnesota and across the country, I think it's important for us to really lay the groundwork of how the thoughts for this this new radical vision for America really gained momentum uh, in the 20th century. In fact, 20th century literary critic Lionel Trilling uh, wrote a book in 1955 called The Opposing Self, and he noted that by the end of the 18th century, the moral imagination of the West was intense and it was adverse. And he made these observations at a time when novels played an important role in forming these upper middle class sensibilities. In fact, Trilling had written, quote, The modern self is characterized by certain powers of indignant perception, which became a general attitude. It was an adversary culture. Describe for us the powers that uh, contributed to creating an adversary culture in America, and why does it appeal to people that are cultivated as part of the enlightened crowd?
2: Well, Mark, it's such a, a good question, uh, and it really goes back, I think, to the notion of the in, the alienated intellectual, the most privileged people, you could say, in our society, and what a a central role. Uh, these people have played in creating a vision of society that is, is distributed through uh, the media of all kinds, entertainment, uh, uh, you know, the, the newspapers that we read now, that the social media that we're, uh, that we're, we're part of in this world. These are the people who've been telling us how to view the world, uh, you know, for the last hundred years or so. And, and, uh, what what Trilling said is as you mentioned is that the modern self yeah. as understood by these people is characterized by certain powers of indignant Perception. Uh, he believes that the rest of us are heirs to the sensibility uh, that these intellectuals have given rise to. That that gives a prime role to indignation about the inevitable failures that every society uh, sees because we're all we're all fallen, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And uh, it, these people, especially having abandoned uh, the larger vision that comes from religious belief, um, that believe they. It can create their own sense of personal identity, but it, it's conceived in opposition to the general culture. Uh, so that that that's kind of all they have uh, it, It's an identity that comes from opposing self-righteously the the inevitable, and of course, in their minds, the exaggerated flaws of the society that all the rest of us inhabit.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you do you think, Catherine, as a little aside here, that this is really just done? almost out of self-importance because things have actually gone quite well in this culture for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for very diverse groups of people and so it's almost like they have nothing better to do but to find what's wrong and focus on
2: it and oh, and then make themselves good. Question: Yes, and and Thomas Sowell, uh, the the great uh, political philosopher and economist, uh, absolutely agreed with you. Hmm. He thought, in particular, that intellectuals and their and they're sort of hangers on, you know, mm-hmm. the pro- professorial types. But then everybody in the in the media, nonprofit sector, and all who kind of take their signals from these these great minds that that these folks often. Don't believe that they are uh, valued enough by our society hmm. because traditionally uh, they haven't been given the kind of central role that they believe they are entitled to. You know, they they think they're hmm. they're really smart, they have incredible insights, they're really talented, and they don't <laughs> often you know do financially as well as uh, other people who don't sure. have, let's say, their mm-hmm. education. And that's mm-hmm. certainly one of the factors that's sold
1: is important here. Interesting. Very self-righteous. Yeah, 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 yeah it self-righteous is.
2: Self-righteous is the word, right? It
1: is. Interesting. Uh, well, Catherine, in your writings about the adversary culture, you write of a specific encounter that you had with a group of articulate and earnest and well-educated people that had once traveled to Nicaragua to support the Sandinistas. Can you share with our listeners why they reviled the United States when it came to Nicaragua? And how they responded to you personally when you asked them questions as they pertain to human and political rights in Nicaragua
2: yes, well this was a very this was a kind of a formative moment in my life uh-huh. um, i was a, I was an attorney a young attorney at a firm and um, the the lawyer I worked a lot with uh, was very much into the the, the, the sort of wars of revolution in Central America in the mid-1980s. People remember uh, the Contras in Nicaragua, yeah. mm-hmm. in El Salvador, Nicaragua. So so he uh, would take uh, some of us younger people to these bread-and-soup suppers, so-called, mm-hmm. usually at beautiful luxury homes, mm-hmm. and uh, there'd be a lot of you know, very... Earnest, well-meaning people there who, who frankly didn't uh, grasp the, the bigger picture. And what what I saw when I began to attend these is that these folks uh, would revile our nation for supporting uh, Nicaraguan strongman uh, Anastasio Samosa, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it was just really a vehicle for their larger. Narrative about uh, what what an evil influence uh, mm. America had, had across the world, and certainly in their view, in in Central America, they had no problems with the uh, with the Marxist gun-toting uh, leader of the the revolutionaries in Nicaragua. He could do no wrong. Interesting, mm. you know. And, and in terms of your questions about yeah. uh, their reaction to me, yeah. I just I got a sense as I as I watched these people, uh, that they, that that they were, um, they were really not there for political reasons. There was something bigger going on, and I really saw that to be the case hmm. when I began to ask uh, some skeptical questions of the, the people like the Nicaraguan uh, Marxists who would come and speak to us at these meetings. And I would just ask a few skeptical questions, probing questions, and uh, the folks around me would just turn and glare at me. Oh, like, mm-hmm. how dare you challenge them? So, Dare you challenge this? He, he's now one of the chosen people, right? right. Uh, right. And uh, how dare you do that? So that—that's what really um, wow. It indicated wow. something was wrong to me. Yeah, yeah.
1: And that was back in the eighties. You know, when you when yep. you think about mm-hmm. that. So, you know, we've talked about this before. That a lot of these thought processes have been in the works for a long time, as you pointed out, even you know a hundred years ago, and it's taken a long time to come to the fruition that it's come to recently. But now, boy, it has come to a complete head now. (laughs)
0: Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about um, Lionel Trilling earlier, but I want to shift focus here a little bit and talk about a sociologist uh, named Paul Hollander. Um, We're talking about personal experience. He came to the United States way back in 1956 after escaping from communist Hungary. And Hollander had first hand experience with the totalian regime he was baffled to encounter american intellectuals who were sympathetic to communism and endorsing its revolutionary aims just as you were talking about in terms of what was going on in nicaragua well according to hollander why are so many why are so many of the best off people in the wealthiest freest nation in the world having this contempt for their own society where they've been given opportunity. And what did he have to say about the importance of adversary culture in post-war America?
2: Well, uh, he wrote a, a fascinating book called Political Pilgrims, uh, which hints at the, uh, mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that he, he finds the origin of what you're talking about here, Mark, this mm-hmm. adversary culture, to a, to a major extent in the process of secularization in uh, Western Europe and America. We're talking about some of the smartest people in the world, people like uh, Noam Chomsky, for example, who is probably the the greatest linguist of the 20th Mm -hmm. century at MIT. But people like this were so, so gullible, so drawn into the kind of utopian fantasies Mm -hmm. that filled the hole in their lives that resulted from the, the process of secularization they they were they were hungry for uh, uh, something to give a larger movement to give meaning and purpose to their lives and especially one that would allow them to have superior insights and, and to be morally superior to uh, the, the, the people who in the real world were, were trying to navigate politics. Right. You know, they had the, the, um, uh, the great luxury of sitting outside and passing judgment on others in a way that cast them in a very favorable light mm. of the vanguard, enlightened leaders, and the rest of us are victims of false consciousness.
1: Mm-hmm with no acknowledgement really on their part or even thought of the damage that marxism has caused um in the 21st century you know it's just it's amazing exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, 20th century excuse me yeah mm-hmm. um well history in america and across the world does show us what can happen when the ideology of identity politics is left unchecked and let's first focus on the ideology here in america Uh, We hear a lot about Saul Alinsky, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We've been hearing a lot about him for probably the last 10 years or more. Um, We heard about him way back when he was well-known, and then again in the last 5 to 10 years when Obama ran for office. Um, Correct. So who was Saul Alinsky, and what did he try to convey concerning identity politics back in 1971? And then how successful has Alinsky's strategies been? Um, in America over the last fifty years
2: well so olinsky uh, was the the father of community organizing I remember when mm-hmm. Obama ran for president yes. yeah. most people had no idea what what is it you know he was a community organizer what's uh-huh. that well that that is a a vocation that solominsky was very um instrumental in creating. He ran something called the Industrial Areas Foundation in Chicago. He was the author of a book called Rules for Radicals Mm -hmm. that was published in 1971. And it really is a playbook as to how people who essentially want to transform a society... turn it upside down, as, as he did with the United States, how mm-hmm. they could best uh, achieve that. And a central tool for him was identity politics. It really was a divide-and-conquer strategy mm-hmm. so he huh. talked uh, in he talks in rules for radicals about the fact that a community organizer uh, quote must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent and quote must rub raw the resentments of the people he said mm-hmm. their function was to quote agitate to the point of conflict mm-hmm. because when you do that when you set people against one another yeah. uh, a big a conflict is created in a big space that you can move into and you can manipulate or you will try to manipulate to your own advantage uh, for reasons of increasing your power. that was what Alinsky was
0: all about yeah mm-hmm. oh, it's
2: just it's so evil
0: It's just divide from within <laughs> yeah, and yeah there's
1: really stand... not a lot of other words for it. No. And
2: it's all always done uh, with a you know the noble goal in mind, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You're about equality. You're mm-hmm. about raising the downtrodden. No, mm-hmm. you're about in the end uh, finding yourself on the top of the heap.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And the strategies advertised by Alinsky, I mean, they're nothing new. And you spoke earlier about the Marxist revolution in Nicaragua. You know, the world's dictators across the 20th century they used identity politics to the destruction of many lives. And when I say many, we're talking millions. Mm -hmm. Let's let's first take a look at Vladimir Lenin. He was the first and founding head of government of Soviet Russia and later the Mm -hmm. Soviet Union. How did Lenin incorporate coercive thought reform and what did transformation look like in Russia? And later on, we'll get into the specifics about coercive thought reform.
2: Yeah. So, uh, he was a very skilled practitioner of identity politics, and I quote here, he said, quote, we can and must write in a language which sows among the masses hate, revulsion, and scorn for mm-hmm. those who disagree with us. And he, he did this on many fronts, but he did it, although well, he wasn't around in the, in the 30s, but Stalin, who followed him, yes. was and mm-hmm. a, a perfect example of how identity politics were used uh, to, you know, I- increase power. There was what happened in the Ukraine in the, the mid 1930s, uh, and Stalin intentionally used <clears throat> a group called the uh, the Komsomol or the Communist uh, Youth League, Communist League of Youth, to go into Ukrainian villages. This was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and uh, Stalin wanted to increase his power there. So he sent trained young people in to stir up discontent and hatred among villagers who previously had basically been good neighbors to one another. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. You, know, you talk Use. about derision and scorn. I mean, that's where we see our cancel culture today, today. that shouting down of those yeah. that are, dis- are disagreeable. And then, of course, who are the ones that are taking to the streets and all of these protests and the toppling right. of statues? It's the young folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And they have not been taught their history in right. general right. to even exactly. recognize, recognize. Yeah. that we're repeating history right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's true. And I think it's important to point out, as as Mark just said, that, uh, for example, in, in the Ukraine, what happened was that uh, there were, there were thousands, hundreds of thousands, oh, like millions of deaths as a result of this. When people turn against one another, these resentments are created and rubbed raw. And mm-hmm. as, as you point out, um, we're seeing a similar process uh, beginning here now.
1: We sure are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we sure are.
2: Well, according to Black Book
1: of Communism, it's estimated that 65 million Chinese died under Mao Zedong's attempts to create a new socialist China. Um, Can you talk about the tactics that Mao employed during China's cultural revolution?
2: Well, he did something very similar to what Stalin did in the Ukraine from 66 to 76. People may remember the name the Red Guards. Mm -hmm. They were his shock troops. They were high school students, university students, and they believed that they were championing uh, uh, the exploited, that that they were creating a better world. So what he did, what Mao did as their great leader, was to divide the Chinese people into two uh, opposing groups. One he called the Five Reds. They were people like Communist Party members. And then the five blacks who were landlords and counter-revolutionaries, etc. And these he he labeled uh, enemies of the revolution, and the Red Guards uh, beat these people. Uh, They were hauled off to re-education camps. They were killed. They were Mm. forced to confess uh, their fought crimes in public struggle. Mm-hmm. Which we're seeing and, now too. Absolutely seeing, yeah. And, and of course, the, the same kind of thing happened with the Nazis mm-hmm. in Germany. And I was there uh, two years ago. I was in Berlin, and you you see in these museums of of uh, Nazism pictures of exactly the kind of thing. Well, I shouldn't say exactly That's, because um, these people were being paraded through the streets and yep. and all, and tortured and all. Mm-hmm. But uh, the same kind of struggle sessions where people who dissented were shamed, humiliated, and punished.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's just, it's really a, appalling to me how quickly history is repeating itself. And um, that, that there isn't more concern um, by all parties about what is happening right now is actually really surprising to me, um, how quickly we've fallen in line behind these few elite um, intellectuals that have really shaped the culture.
0: When things sound good, though, on the surface, such as the call for equality and justice, people people will fall in line if they don't know their history. And the thing about all of these movements, it, it, it incrementally builds up to these crescendo moments. But once it reaches that the dominoes fall fast,
2: mm-hmm. very fast. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And we should be aware that, uh, that renaming, uh, it was uh, a major part of uh, Mao's initiative uh, during the Cultural Revolution. He wanted to, to destroy what he called the Four Olds, Fork old customs, old mm. cultures, habits, ideas, and replaced them with the foreign news. And a big part of that was renaming stores, renaming streets. We're certainly seeing renaming and toppling yes. going on today. Yes. Similar kind of thing.
0: Wow. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, Catherine, you pose a very interesting question in response to the widespread endorsement of Black Lives radicalism that followed the death of George Floyd uh, last spring. Why are society's most powerful opinion makers? And when I speak of opinion makers, we need to think of the leaders of Ivy League universities, major media outlets. Of course, the the media is is bought out, plain and simple. Fortune five hundred corporations. They're ignoring the extraordinary progress America has made, uh, as we alluded to earlier in the program and yet they're supporting a revolt against mainstream legal, political, and cultural institutions. I mean, who are these elites, and aren't they in a real sense, though, the system that they're opposing?
2: Yes, yes, and actually that's kind of a... Phenomenon that you saw in the in the, in the Soviet Union before yep. the revolution, uh, where uh, a lot of the intellectuals, without really understanding what they were supporting, uh, supported uh, a, a similar kinds of revolutionary activity. I think the reason is partly because this adversary culture we talked about earlier um, has become, according to Hollander, just kind of a free floating sensibility mm-hmm. that. Essentially, college-educated people have picked up uh, in, their, in their years in the higher education. And, of course, now they see it reflected in TV shows and, you know, all over. Mm-hmm. But I think this woke capitalism you're describing, to some extent, is a go-along-to-get-along movement. Mm-hmm. You know, the CEO of whatever big company uh, doesn't want to be a target and and so uh, it's it's um, what what's the, money, the 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 term I want where you pay people uh, to to stay away from basically you.
1: blackmail or you know to avoid I being blackmailed,
2: blackmailed money. <laughs> extortion. Like extortion there you go yes money mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I think also this this is so much about virtuous signaling mm-hmm. uh, where they can go to their cocktail parties and they can talk to their fellow CEOs and well, just think about the beautiful Homes are in some of the wealthier areas around the Twin Cities that I uh, have Black Lives Matter signs mm-hmm. on their lawns. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a way to, to show how enlightened, how caring, how empathetic you are. And, and people just aren't looking below the surface. Right. right. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And they don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't. They almost don't want to look below the surface because they feel like if they can just keep everything up on that level, then they're safe.
2: Right. You don't think... uh, yeah. Yeah. We're spoiled, right? Mm-hmm. We have forgotten where we came from and how we got there, and we're taking advantage of all that our our forebears have created for our
0: for us. One hundred percent. It's not wanting to ruffle the feathers of the masses because the masses have not gone below to look below the surface, so mm-hmm. we'll keep it mm-hmm. at a very surface level mm-hmm. of what sounds good. Yes.
1: Exactly. Katherine, you've written extensively about the revolution of sorts that's underway in many Minnesota schools. I'm getting emails from parents all over the place, uh, mm-hmm. myself here. Um, and in February, you shared with us how school officials in Egan and Hopkins are promoting a new radical vision of American society. What would you describe as the purpose of this new revolution? And how are school districts falling all over themselves um, in promoting this?
2: well uh the, the purpose uh, ostensibly is equity right mm-hmm. racial equity uh ostensibly uh, uh racial harmony uh that that kind of thing of course the the kinds of tactics being used are guaranteed to produce <laughs> the opposite yeah. to mm-hmm. to rub resentments raw and mm-hmm. uh, to create uh much more conflict so what we've what we're seeing and of course it's in so many school districts across the Twin Cities metro area, but perhaps what you're alluding to in Hopkins is the fact that the um, uh, the superintendent there announced, uh, uh, I, I believe in the spring of, of 2020, that Hopkins schools would be completely re, you know, rejiggering the way they provide education to um, get rid of what they called uh, the 13 characteristics of white supremacy. And astoundingly, these include what we would view as truly racist notions, uh, such as the fact that being on time as a student is not something uh, black students can do. We can't expect them to be on time. We can't expect them them to get their papers in on time because that's a white that's a characteristic of white supremacy. And and so is logical, linear, scientific thinking. That's that's a characteristic of a white supremacy. Black students can't do that. So, you know and St. Louis Park, by the way, has just entirely gotten rid of its gifted and talented program because of, you know, racial disparities. And also my understanding is of the intervention teachers who help pull who pull out kids who can't do uh, who need help in in reading and math because, you know, there are racial disparities there. So supposedly they're gonna be providing gifted education for all students every day now because all of them are quote brilliant. Oh my god. I I wonder what you'd say about that as I had math. Yeah, I would
1: have a lot to say about that if I had a little bit more time today. (laughs) Well Catherine, we are already at the end of our time here and we're so glad to have had you here and we look forward to having you back again next week uh, when we cover continue the conversation on this topic, this very, very important topic yes, of critical race theory and everything that goes with it in our nation's public schools and actually a lot of private schools as well.
0: In this adversary culture, it's nothing new. It's been going on for many, many years. Yep,
1: absolutely.
0: All right. Well, that's all we have for tonight. We will be inviting you again to join us next Saturday right here on Education America here on AM 1280, The Patriot. We will... Uh, Anticipate your tuning in next Saturday night at 6 o'clock.
1: Thanks, everyone.